Welcome to another glorious show on this Monday. Um, I have updates for you. I have updates about the assassination, assassination, excuse me, that's not the easiest word to say, um, of General Suleimani, and some poll numbers are in, so we're going to get to find out uh, if it had the intended effect that Trump wanted it to have. Uh, we also have social media shooting free speech in the back of the head in order to serve the U.S. government. An interesting story there. Um, And then later on, Trump cannot stop admitting to war crimes. He just keeps going. He does it on live TV. So I have another example. And yes, I know a lot of you listening right now are probably wanting uh, some commentary on the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren mucked up feud that's happening right now. I will discuss that. It is a manufactured story that on a level that we haven't seen in a long time. So we'll talk about that. And then uh, later on in the show, we have a story that might give you some hope for the future, particularly in regards to healthcare. So there's a lot of stuff to get to. Let's go ahead and jump into it. And the first thing I want to touch on is Uh, An interesting record that was just broken. So here in New York, um, yesterday was quite an interesting day. We obliterated the historical record for warmest temperature this time of year. So it was January 12th, and the previous record, now I've seen two 
two sites said two different things. I don't know which one is true, um, but the record previously was either 61 degrees or 63 degrees, which is for mid-January, anybody who knows New York, that's insane. That's insane because the average is 33 degrees for January 12th. Um, well, it hit, in some places in New York, 69 degrees yesterday. It almost hit 70 degrees in the middle of January. Those are like late spring, early summer numbers there. So it, it was out of this world warm. Um, now, you know, cue the normal commentary here where I have to remind you guys every single time we talk about this. Um, you can't say any one weather event is due to climate change because you have to always look at the trends, the patterns. Now, the patterns, you, of course, can, you know, talk about climate change in the context of the patterns. You can't do it for any one individual uh, weather event. Now, it wasn't just it wasn't just yesterday, though, because the day before yesterday, we broke a record as well. The day before yesterday, I believe the number was 63 degrees that we hit, and that shattered the January, it didn't shatter, but it broke the January 11th record for New York. Um, now, today's uh, 45 degrees where I am in New York, which is still, again, unseasonably warm, but it's not, you know, obliterating records like yesterday did. But, man, that's something else, isn't it? Um now, there were other parts in the country, you know, the Midwest, I think, is getting hammered by, uh, by some snow. I know Corin was telling me that by him, uh, there was quite a bit of snow. Um, so the main reason for me talking about this is actually not um, to make a broader point about climate change. Although, again, it's, you can do that in the context of talking about the weather patterns over an extended period of time. You can't do it while talking about any one individual day or one individual weather event. But the reason why I'm talking about this is because I learned something about myself yesterday. I, without a doubt, have some seasonal depression. No question. No question. Um, and actually, so I was researching it because obviously it piqued my interest. And uh, the technical name, I believe, is Seasonal Affective Disorder. And the acronym is SAD, SAD. <laughs> And it's SAD in all caps, <laughs> which, of course, most of you are going to think of Trump when you hear that. <laughs> sad, sad. Um, so I never realized this about myself before. I mean, I just kind of thought it was normal, natural, that, yeah, of course, when it gets to, like, fall and winter, you just, you're not as happy. But the thing is, normally there's, like, a, a little, like, a slow progression into the the shittier weather and the darker weather and the sun setting earlier. So, you know, it's not, it doesn't hit you all at once. It's just, it's a little bit by day and it's like a gradual slide into you're not as happy, you know, midfall, midwinter as you are mid spring, mid summer. But the reason why I, you know, I'm mentioning this today is when you get a random 68 degree day in the middle of the winter, the, co the contrast is so stark because three days ago, my happiness level is down here. And then on the day where it's 68 degrees and sunny, I swear to you all that my, 
my happiness level tripled and my energy level tripled. And it was a slap in the face. So I was like, wow. So this is, because I'm, I'm one of those people who thinks, even though I know mind over matter is generally pretty stupid, I think on some level I thought like, well, yeah, we just will yourself out of it. Just do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you'll be fine in the winter like you would be in the summer. No, wrong. Because <laughs> there, there's nothing that could have duplicated that difference. There's nothing on the earth that could have naturally tripled the happiness level, tripled the energy level. So, man, what a slap in the face that was. I definitely have, I don't want to say it's seasonal depression because I actually think that's disrespectful to people who have actual depression because I'm not, you know, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination suicidal. It's not anything that's, you know, I'm incapable of handling. Um, but that's, you know, why I did the research and apparently seasonal affective disorder. I think that's like a step below you know, all-out depression or seasonal depression. It's like a mild version of it. Um, so that was my experience, and I wanted to share that with everybody because, I, you know, again, it was so stark that I was like, this is incredible. I can't believe the difference. One day, beautiful, temper beautiful weather, nice temperature, you know, and all of a sudden tripled my happiness level, tripled my energy level, and... Um, now I have to brace for the misery that's about to come because <laughs> for the next two or three months, it'll still be, you know, terrible here. I doubt we'll get more of that, more of what we saw yesterday. And again, if we get more of what we just saw yesterday, then the planet is dying, <laughs> which is not good, even though it'll cure my depression. Um, but yeah, I'm curious. I I'm sure that I'm not the only one who felt that either. I saw some things on social media and a bunch of people were talking about it. And apparently it's like 10 to 20% of the country that has, you know, a mild version or just flat out seasonal affective disorder. So that's, uh, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. One out of every 10 or two out of every 10, that's a decent number of people. So I'm sure many of you had the same, just by the numbers, 10 or 20% of you had the same thing if you're living in the general area that I am, if you're in the Northeast. Um, and what a slap in the face. What a wake-up call that was. So we'll see. Of course, I, I did some research on, you know, what one can do um, in this situation without needing a 68-degree sunny day. And there's all types of stuff. You can take vitamin B12. You can take vitamin D. Those are two, uh, two things that they recommend. Uh, another one is they have apparently this light therapy, which I think the evidence shows it works to some extent, which is like, you know, you get this super bright light that uh, you got to kind of shine on yourself for the first like 30 minutes of the day. And that is supposed to have some positive effect. It's supposed to mimic the, uh, you know, the sunlight hitting you and give you that boost, even when it's like cloudy and gross outside and whatever. But yeah, um, what a slap in the face. What a wake-up call. Seasonal affective disorder is absolutely real, and there's nothing to prove it like a random 68-degree day in the middle of January. Okay. Um, now let's get into a bunch of stuff on Iran. Enough about my, my mood, my happiness level. Here we go. 
Last week, I predicted for you that Trump's assassination of General Soleimani of Iran would be unpopular. Well, now the verdict is in. 56% of Americans say they disapprove of President Trump's handling of heightened tensions with Iran, according to an ABC News poll conducted by Ipsos Public Affairs. Why it matters. 52% of Americans said the Trump administration's decision to kill General uh, Qasem Soleimani in an airstrike makes them feel less safe, despite assurances from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and other officials that the U.S. is safer with Soleimani gone. By the numbers, approval of the airstrike breaks down along party lines. 87% of Republicans approved of Trump's decision-making on Iran, and 54% said they feel safer. 90% of Democrats said they disapproved, and 82% feel less safe. But here's the key part, guys. 57% of independents, a key electoral target for both parties, disapprove of Trump's handling of the situation, with 51% saying they feel less safe. So there's, you know, a lot of information there. Um, 87% of Republicans are acting incredibly sycophantic. And, you know, now we know. The, the principled anti-war Republicans, 13% of the party. Or 13% 13 of Trump supporters are principled in their anti-intervention stance. So 87% fell right in line to so they approved of Trump's decision-making which is wild. But the interesting part, though, is 54% said they feel um, safer, which means 46% said I, this doesn't make me feel safer. So, but that's just the Republican numbers. The other stuff is more interesting to me. 90% of Democrats disapproved. 57% of independents disapproved. And again, the overall number, 56% of Americans say they disapprove of Trump's handling of Iran. Now, Here's the reason why I made that prediction, and it came out to be true. When we had the Iraq War, George W. Bush spent at least a year propagandizing the American public, trying to make them think that Saddam Hussein was about to attack us. The argument was, oh my God, Saddam Hussein um, worked with Osama bin Laden to do 9-11. And, and then, you know, that changed to Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, and the implication is if we don't do something, he's going to use it on us. And then eventually they move the goalposts all the way to just, he's a bad guy, he's a dictator, he's a bad guy, so we got to take him out. But they spent a year trying to tell you, oh my God, he's responsible for 9-11, and oh my God, he has weapons of mass destruction. So when you feed the media propaganda and they relentlessly push it out there, and you got Dick Cheney going around giving speeches, telling everybody to be afraid, and you do it for an extended period of time, people eventually start to believe the lie. And that's what happened, people believe the lie. And you have Colin Powell famously going to the... Um, you know, the U.N. holding up a vial saying, see, he's building, uh, you know, he's building weapons of mass destruction. So they sold the public on it because they were relentless in their propaganda. So when we started the Iraq war, guys, the approval rating was like 80 or 90 percent. It was overwhelming. And historically, not just for the U.S., for any country, historically, if you build up the threat enough and then the president or the leader takes us to war, people generally fall in line because they want to feel patriotic and they want to feel like, you know, we're doing the right thing and our, our strong leader is taking us through this tumultuous time. So, and I think that that's part of Trump's reasoning as to why he did this, because, you know, he's politically embattled at this moment. And you got the impeachment that got through the House. 
And uh, we'll get to a story later as to more specifics as to why he did what he did. But Trump famously said in 2011 that he thinks Obama is going gonna, is gonna to bomb Iran so that he gets reelected. So that's the way this guy's mind thinks. Even though he says a lot of anti-war stuff on the campaign trail, he also thinks, well, hey, if I do you know, a bombing, well, then that'll help me get reelected because the country will go, our strong leader is showing everybody who's boss. That's the way Trump's mind thinks. Again, he said it. He said it in 2011. Obama's going to bomb Iran to get reelected. That's what he said. He thought that would help him in his reelection. So the election's, you know, a year away, and Trump assassinated a top Iranian general. Um, but people are against it because they didn't even bother to propagandize you. They didn't even bother to make a BS case beforehand. Again, we're all minding our business one day, and the news breaks that we assassinated a top Iranian general, sparking an international crisis. So when you didn't propagandize us beforehand, people are, people's response is going to be, what did Trump do? He, he murdered an Iranian general? Who is this guy? Why should we have been afraid of him? What, did, what was he in the process of doing? And then they were, working, they were behind the eight ball from the beginning. They're running around like, um, yeah, he posed an imminent threat. And by an imminent threat, I don't mean against our country. I mean against maybe, maybe not people in the region actively plotting to do so. Don't ask for evidence. I don't have any evidence, but shut up and accept it. Well, everybody's going to be like, how about you, www.pissoff.com. And that's the reaction. So this is a historically unpopular move as far as military action goes. Because it took people an extended period of time to turn on the Iraq war, guys. It took people an extended period of time to turn on the war in Afghanistan. You know, as of 2013, and this is the most recent polling I've seen, only like 17% of the country still wants to be in Afghanistan. More unpopular than Vietnam. But it took a long time to get to that point because we were, we were propagandized early on. For Trump, he didn't propagandize us. He assassinated his top general, sparked an international crisis, and, you know, then he turns around and expects everybody to heap praise on him. It's like, wh What? What? And, of course, it doesn't mesh with the occasional anti-war stuff he said on the campaign trail. So there's the, you know, the issue of being a massive hypocrite and having no actual you know, philosophical or ideological underpinning for his actions here. So the end result, this was unpopular. This was unpopular. And I think that it kind of woke people up to something that's, you know, we've known about Trump for a while, but maybe this is the most stark example of it. It's the, like, impulsive nature. The, you know, yeah, yeah, do it. Like, what, wait, what? This is like something that should require a tremendous amount of thought and nuance and, and careful decision-making. He's like, yeah, I just assassinated him. What? This, it's not like taking out a non-state actor. This guy was a, a state actor. An Iranian general is a state actor. You put them in a position where they have to respond. And they did respond. Thankfully, they were very clever and intelligent about it, and they warned the U.S., and then we, they attacked that base without, you know, having any casualties. But, you know... This was, uh, you're really playing with fire here, and you're really showing just how impulsive this guy is. So people were against it. Now, you know, this gets to the final point I'll make in this story, which is, Democrats, here you go. Go to town. Go to work. You know, don't shut up about this. It's weird because Democrats always convince themselves they're playing a losing hand when they're playing a winning hand. Because this is one of those issues where if you hammer away, you can make, forget 56% uh, disapprove of this. You can get this number to 75% disapprove of this. If you're the ones who are aggressive, you're the ones who point out what he actually did here. You're the ones who point out that there, there was no threat from this guy. That's utter nonsense. They're lying. 
So if you do that, you could win, but no. <laughs> What's going to happen? We're already seeing it happen. Democrats are swatting this aside to go right back to impeachment and what a twilight zone world we live in where Donald Trump can assassinate a foreign leader with impunity, but he gets impeached over a bad phone call. And that's where we are, and that's a shame because this is something that you should go to work over. And, you know, this, this can be one of the main issues now that Democrats run on, and they would win on that because the American people didn't want this, and now the numbers show it. Okay, next. Instagram. And you're going to find out what they're doing, which is no bueno. Social media companies have really crossed the line on a really important issue. You know, you could argue this is just an American issue um, because our approach on these topics is is generally unique. Facebook to remove pro-Soleimani posts on Instagram, CNN reports. Facebook is taking down Instagram posts that express support for Iranian commander Qasem Soleimani, who was killed in a U.S. strike, CNN reported. Pictures run by or on behalf of sanctioned people and organizations, as well as posts that commenders support their actions, will be removed because the social media company operates under U.S. laws, a Facebook spokesman said in a statement to the news agency. The Iranian government has protested by calling for legal action against Facebook's photo-sharing app Instagram, one of few Western social media platforms not blocked in the country. A government website also created a portal for users to submit examples of removed posts Iranian state media reported, according to CNN. So, um, this is a problem. And it's a problem for a number of reasons. Um, what even counts as a pro Soleimani post? So, you know, I've done segments on this show, and I will continue to do these segments because it's factually accurate, that goes through this guy's record. Now, when I point out the fact that he was on a peace mission when he was assassinated, If you post that on Instagram or Facebook, is that considered a pro-Suleimani post, even though it's accurate? He was on a peace mission trying to ease tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia when he was killed by a U.S. drone. Now, that fact is seemingly pro-Suleimani, but shouldn't it be allowed to be said, since it is, you know, something that's the actual reality of the situation? Are you allowed to say, hey, I agreed with this guy when he was a frontline fighter against ISIS and helped defeat them? I agreed with this guy when he was a U.S. ally and a Kurdish ally in the fight. Are you allowed to say that? Are you not allowed to say, I take this guy's side in a fight against ISIS in particular? Are you not allowed to say that? Because, again, everything I just laid out right there is a fact. It's a historical fact that he fought ISIS. He was allies with the U.S. and the Kurds. We were just on his side celebrating when there was a, you know, a mission that U.S. air power backed with this guy. Are you not allowed to say that? Are you not allowed to point out the fact that, uh, and actually we're going to get into more specifics on this later. I have an amazing report on this and some incredible details on this. Uh, but are you not allowed to point out the fact that there is zero evidence that this guy has any American blood on his hands? Yes, you heard me correctly. 
It turns out the same people who made the accusation that this guy has American blood on his hands, um, those are the same people who lied about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It's the same neocon ghouls. And again, if you don't believe me now, fine. You will believe me later when I go through the specifics that we have on this. But it, I, are you not allowed to point that out, that this guy, there's no evidence he has any American blood on his hands? Because that is a fact that is seemingly pro-Suleimani, but it's actually a fact. It's accurate. It's the truth. Are you not allowed to say those things? Because they could be spun as pro-Suleimani. Hey, it's pro-Suleimani to say those things, even though they're accurate. Are you not allowed to say, I oppose the United States extrajudicially, illegally killing foreign leaders? Are you not allowed to say that? Because that would seem like a pro-Suleimani thing to say, but again, it's a principled stance that you're taking. So this opens, you know, Pandora's box here, and that gets to the main point. Guys, this isn't up in the air. This is absolutely a restriction on freedom of speech. So you're not allowed to say you agree with official U.S. enemies. You're not allowed to say that. Well, you know, where does it end? Where does it end? So if you say, I'm against the sanctions on Venezuela, are they going to say, hey, that's pro-Maduro, so now you're not allowed to put that, and we're going to pull your post or pull your account? Are you, you know, not allowed to say, hey, I don't recognize the coup in Bolivia, and I think Morales should still be in power? You're not allowed to say that, because the U.S. position is they don't want Morales in power. You realize how dangerous this is? You realize how you're playing with fire, and you realize how... If these same set of facts existed in any other country, we would say state enforcers are demanding that their propaganda be shown on social media sites and they want to ban any other perspective. So this is not this this is a, a clear violation of free speech. And fairness and accuracy in media tweeted about this and said the exact same thing that this is a wanton violation of freedom of speech and if this were to go to court, there you know, there's a decent chance that the courts would say you can't Freaking pull at the behest of the U.S. government, you're going to pull posts that they don't like because they're expressing political opinions that you disagree with? That's like the definition of against the First Amendment. At the behest of the U.S. government, pull the opinions that they don't like. That's the heart of the First Amendment. That's part and parcel of the First Amendment. Now, sure, Facebook and Instagram didn't exist back when they wrote the Constitution, but this is definitely the spirit of the First Amendment. At the behest of the U.S. government, I'm going to ban stuff that I don't like the way it sounds. Are you kidding me? They don't like it, so I'm going to pull it. This has to stop. This has to stop. And by the way, I know that, uh, you know, Max Blumenthal, uh, Ben Norton, Rania Kalik, they've all had uh, issues because I think it's uh, Max Blumenthal's site, The Gray Zone. And I think there were posts either I, – I, I'm going to botch this story, and I don't know the details, and I apologize to Max and Ben if they're watching this. But the gist of the story is one of their outlets, I think Max Blumenthal's outlet, was posting stuff on social media, and their page got pulled down because they said, oh, it's propaganda. And it might have been under this same banner, the banner of like, oh, you're pro-Suleimani, so therefore you're violating the terms of service, therefore we're going to pull you down, even though those are just lefty journalists who are explaining the situation as they see it. And by the way, they're way more correct than any mainstream media outlet. So, and, this, and this is the point we're at, guys. Now, this is happening on Facebook, right? It's happening on Facebook. It's happening on Instagram. Let me ask you a question. What happens when this happens on YouTube? You know who's impacted by that? Yours truly. Absolutely, I would be. 
because they would look take one look at this segment I'm doing right here, or an algorithm would take one look at the segment I'm doing here, and they go, oh, Pro Suleimani, gone, get rid of it. Why? Hey, we have to com- comply with U.S. law, and U.S. law sanctions Suleimani. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. U.S. law sanctions Suleimani. He's an individual. So, yeah, U.S. law sanctions, I, I don't know, maybe he can't have uh, financial transactions that involve U.S. corporations or whatever. That's what a sanction of Suleimani means. It doesn't mean that nobody could ever utter a word that the U.S. government doesn't like about the guy. That's not what that means. But that's how they're interpreting it. And they're interpreting that, it that way because the government wants them to interpret it that way because they're in the bed, in bed with the U.S. government. Just like we've heard stories of, you know, Facebook pulling down pro-Palestinian pages because the Israeli government wants them to do it. This is now Facebook and Instagram doing the same thing at the behest of the U.S. government. There's no freedom of speech. And by the way, freedom of speech, it's going to be killed wearing the cloak of corporate decision-making. Because Facebook and Instagram can turn around and say, oh, no, no, forget about the U.S. government. We want to implement this policy, and we're allowed to do it, and you can't tell us we can't do it. So if they get away with it, that's going to be their argument. Their argument's going to be, no, 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 it's got nothing to do with the U.S. government. I decided I don't like posts that glorify, as I define glorify, this guy, so I'm going to get to pull it down. I'm going to pull it down. Accept it. Well, you don't, it doesn't matter if you accept it or not because we can do whatever we want. We're the company. So congratulations to everybody who ever cheered for, you know, some right winger to get pulled or whatever the case is because this is the road that we're now going down. Censorship always comes back to hurt the left. Why? Because the left actually challenges power. So this is a very, very bad situation. I hope they reverse this decision. And at the very least, I hope this decision doesn't expand to Twitter, doesn't expand to YouTube, because they would definitely come after me, you, and everybody like us who wants to tell the truth about these conflicts. Okay, now let's go to Fox News. Fox News is heavily propagandizing their audience. I know that's not exactly breaking news, but this debate on Sean Hannity's show on the Soleimani assassination is probably the worst example of propagandizing I've ever seen, particularly because the one sane voice is getting railroaded, and Hannity and and Dan Bongino, who are on the wrong side of this, just keep making wrong assertion after wrong assertion after wrong assertion. And I'll show you afterwards that they are indeed wrong. I don't know what we're doing there. We don't need their oil anymore. Let them fight each other. Let them eat each other alive. The Shiites and the Sunnis and their multi-thousands of years. He was doing in Baghdad. Dan Bongino, he was there to help Hezbollah kill Americans at the embassy. That's what they were up to. Yeah, um, Geraldo, he wasn't there, Soleimani, uh, you know, picking up cheesecakes. Uh, he was in Iraq. Now, I've been keeping my powder dry for a couple of days, but i got to tell you, Geraldo, I've been pretty furious 
uh, with some of your comments on the network, including on the five today. And I have not knocked you until I faced you live, but I've got to tell you, your comments have been absolutely atrocious. Um, number one, the argument that this is somehow was inappropriate or unjustified or that there wasn't an imminent to the attack. I, I mean, unnecessary. Geraldo, let me ask you a very serious question. How many bodies, do you have an exact body count? I mean, was Soleimani's 600 dead Americans not enough? Is it like, did we have to reach 1,000 first? I mean, what did you think this guy I, 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 I did 11 assignments. I did 11 assignments. I did 11 assignments in the war in Iraq. I've attended more memorial services than you ever did, Dan. I deeply feel no, every no, loss we've seen. I deeply feel listen to me. Lost they have lost over 600,000. They have lost over 600,000. You know what? I don't sit here on the network and tell everyone about my time in the Secret Service running around the world with the President of the United States in some of the world's dangerous hot zones. I'm glad you did. Congratulations. Nice work. That doesn't give you the right to be wrong. And that doesn't give you special insight to say things that are ridiculous. Soleimani was one of the world's leading terrorists. This was an unabashedly good thing, not just for the United States, for the world. The fact that you is, spent is time that in the force of covering it, that's great work. Is this the new you normal? You did a nice job. Is, is it the new normal that right. we assassinate the people that we don't like? He's the number two guy in the Iranian government. He's like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's not like he showed up late for a birthday party. I mean, get your head out of your butt. Are you kidding me? You know, we don't like you. You I never insult you personally, buddy. But you you feel that you can go gutter surfing. I'm telling you right now that I disagree with this action. It doesn't mean that I am unpatriotic. It doesn't mean that that I have an official insight. We picked the fight. We didn't have to pick. We picked the fight. We didn't have to pick. What is the Trump doctrine? Isn't it Trump doctrine to bring the troops home? Isn't it the Trump doctrine? He's not going to bribe dictators like Biden and Obama did, Geraldo. And I'll just say this. Soleimani killed our Americans, and he was in Baghdad, and he was leading the Hezbollah effort against our embassy. That's American souls at risk, and that is our territory, and that's our sovereignty, and we're just going to disagree. But... But I know I you feel still love you. I love you. I mean, I even right. like peace and, peace and love. We used to do that on your TV show. First of all, when they say, oh, Soleimani was in Baghdad uh, because he was leading the fight against our embassies, that's not true. What we know is the Iraqi prime minister has already spoken about the fact that he was there to de-escalate tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So he was on a peace mission when he was assassinated. This idea that he was behind the embassy protests is not true. And by the way, they were embassy protests. Look at the way that these guys think it's justified to respond to protests. Well, obviously, we murder your top general. You protest our embassy being in a country, you know, that's we're there violating their territorial sovereignty. We have no right to be there. We're there. So citizens of that country protest the embassy. Well, obviously, we're well within our rights to assassinate a top Iranian general in response. What? Wow. So Hannity's just wrong when he's like, oh, he was there uh, to kill Americans. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. Uh, And I love it when Dan Bongino gets like, tries to pretend like he's having like righteous anger. And he's like, your comments have been inappropriate. 
to save it with the, you know, like the, how dare you say, I'm offended. I thought you guys were like the anti-snowflake people, and you're fine with people being politically incorrect. But the second that it deviates from your party line, you flip out. They were inappropriate, and I've been holding my breath, you know, waiting to tell you all these things that you say. You're a bad man, Geraldo. Bad, bad man. I don't care about your value judgments. Talk about the facts. Now, let's get to the facts, okay? So first of all, assuming for a second that they're right, and they're not, when they say, oh, Suleimani had American blood on his hands. Okay, Dick Cheney has Iraqi blood on his hands. Would the Iraqi government be within their rights to fly a drone over Wyoming and assassinate Dick Cheney? And then when we get mad, they turn around and go, he had minimum 200,000, you know, deaths on his hands. The blood of innocent men and women and children. You're going to disagree with that? He was a really bad guy. Would we be cool with that? Oh, that's right. We wouldn't be. We wouldn't be. So maybe that's not the way it works. The way it works in international affairs isn't just, we don't like them, press the button. Look how stupid these guys are, man. Beyond stupid. That's the first point. Now, the second point is, um, guys, there is zero actual evidence that Soleimani and Iran are responsible for killing hundreds of Americans. So look at this, um, this article on this topic. This is really important. The assertions being repeated today seem based on apparently groundless claims from 12 years ago by the same people who said Iraq possessed weapons, weapons programs, and weapons systems that were such a grave threat that they ignited the U.S.-Iraq war. So let me give you some of what they say. The National Intelligence Estimate on Iraq, compiled by America's 16 intelligence agencies and issued in February 2007, downplayed Iran's role in Iraq's violence and instability. Yet it was at this point that the George W. Bush administration began making the case that Iran had become the principal foreign threat to U.S. forces in Iraq. The Bush administration's case was based primarily on assertions that bomb fragments, such as those displayed by U.S. military officials in a press conference in Baghdad on February 11th of that year, were of Iranian origin. But they never showed any proof making this linkage. U.S. officials originally claimed to have documents, computer files, confessions by captured Iranians, and evidence that Iranian officials were caught with explosives, none of this was ever made public. However, raising doubts as to whether such evidence even existed in the first place. Now, they go on to say, even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marine General Peter Pace at the time, admitted that there was no proof that the Iranian government was supplying Iraqi insurgents with the lethal weaponry. The British government withdrew similar charges made in 2005, and the Iraqi government has also denied U.S. accusations of an Iranian connection. So, in other words, all those IEDs that Soleimani's getting blamed for and Iran's getting blamed for, there's no evidence that they're responsible for those IEDs. And, in fact, it's much more likely that Iraqis were responsible for it because we were fighting in Iraq. And then here's more on it. I cross-checked a Pentagon casualty database. This is an investigative reporter, by the way, and a wonderful one that happens to work for The Intercept. I cross-checked a Pentagon casualty database with obituaries, and not one of the nine American servicemen killed fighting in Iraq since 2011 died at the hands of militias backed by Soleimani. His assassination was about revenge and provocation, not self-defense. The argument that Soleimani is somehow responsible for dead Americans literally comes from the exact same people that made the case that Saddam Hussein worked with Osama bin Laden to do 9-11. 
It comes from the same people who said Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, and by implication, he's about to use them on us, so we have to go and take him out. The same people that made that claim are the same people that are claiming Soleimani is responsible for dead Americans. No evidence for any of it. This is why you distrust the government. This is why you don't take it at face value. We played a clip for you the other week. All mainstream media hosts and guests say, I'll take it at face value that there was an imminent threat from Soleimani against the U.S. homeland. What? Why? Why would you do that? An Iranian general was planning imminent attacks against the U.S. homeland, knowing that if they get pinned for the blame on that, we would take them out in five minutes. We would literally start bombing, like Trump said, 52 civilian sites or 52 cultural sites we have uh, that we're looking at. He knows that that's the case. Why would they do that? Why would they do that when they know their military budget is 37 cents and a Pop-Tart and ours is $740 billion or whatever the hell it is now? Why would they do that? They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. So it's nonsense. It's BS. It's not true. There's no evidence for it. The burden of proof isn't on me. The burden of proof is on them. But here's why this is so dangerous from Fox News. The one dissenting voice is the guy from Office Space who's like, you know, I really would like to tell you that I disagree with you, but I disagree with you a very little bit because you're being very loud to me. And when you're loud to me, I don't like how that feels. So I'm going to say that I have to disagree with you. And maybe you made some decent points, and maybe you were right, but I'm going to sit here and take it, and please punch me in the face repeatedly. The one dissenting voice is like that. Now, to be fair to Geraldo, he's not always like that, but in this clip he was like that. And Dan Bongino and Sean Hannity, who are dead wrong and have no evidence for anything that they're saying, are railroading him. Yeah, he killed, he killed 600 Americans, blood's up, blood is on his hands, he's got American blood on his hands, he's a terrorist, we have to take out the terrorists, we have to... None of that's true. None of that's true. None of it's true. So at the end of the day, what do we have here? We have a situation where the president of the United States, illegally under U.S. law, illegally under international law, unconstitutionally under U.S. law, took out a foreign leader, a foreign general, when there was no direct threat of violence against us, no imminent attack being planned. It was an illegal, unconstitutional assassination and it was a giant escalation, and it was a war crime. That's what we have, and it's not being discussed as such, but it should be. So that's the reality of the situation. Sean Hannity and Dan Bongino are manufacturing consent for U.S. war crimes, and a lot of the people who watch Fox News are the people who are likely to believe that the U.S. is acting defensive by definition no matter what we do. And it really is crazy because Trump is a guy who said on the campaign trail, you know, he ran against the Iraq war. He ran against these interventions and escalations. And now he's doing it. And the Republicans flip on a dime. I told you the number. 87% of Republicans support what Trump did in Iran now. Not, you know, many of them support it because of what you just saw right there. Because of the relentless propaganda that they've now done since the attack. Thankfully, it's not working on the entire country. 56% of the country is against what he did. So it didn't work overall, but among Republican circles, it's working. And one of the reasons why is they have a relentless propaganda outlet, Fox News, which is doing their bidding and lying every step of the way. Okay. All right. Let me, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, I got Trump admitting to war crimes. I'm not done with our president yet. Our big, beefy president is going to get more secular talk treatment. So stay right there. We'll be right back with uh, all that and much more. 
All right, we're back, y'all. I have some breaking news for everybody. Cory Booker has officially dropped out of the Democratic race. Um, I know that half of you thought he was already out, but he wasn't. He was still in. Um, Now he's out. And Trump decided to troll him today. Kind of funny. He tweeted something along the lines of, uh, Cory Booker, who was polling at 0%, dropped out. I'm so happy because I was afraid I would have had to face him. (laughs) What a troll. It was ridiculous. Um, So Cory Booker dropped out. Actually, a couple days ago, Marianne Williamson dropped out as well. Marianne Williamson was, you know, never polling. I don't know if she was ever above like 3%. I don't think she was. But then again, I don't know if Cory Booker was ever over like 3%. (laughs) That'd be fair to Cory. He had like maybe one or two debates where he wasn't bad. But I think at a certain point, he was just in the race kind of auditioning for a VP slot. Um, Now, I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to make a prediction here. And I'll tell you why I'm making the prediction in a second. I think Cory Booker, just like Julian Castro did, I think Cory Booker is going to endorse Elizabeth Warren. That's what I think. Uh, Now, I'm guessing, but it's an educated guess. Why? He's been dropping indicators. He's been dropping little hints that that's what he's going to do, in a similar way to what Julian Castro did, too. But with Corey, I think it's even more clear. Um, Now, the reason I say that is because he's smart enough to know that the future is not just with the rank corporate Democrats, um, but he's also not an actual lefty, so he wouldn't endorse Bernie Sanders. So, you know, he would go with the more compromised candidate who has a little bit of credibility with progressives and credibility with uh, the establishment. And I think that was Julian Castro's calculation. I think that's Cory Booker's calculation as well. Um, And one of the reasons I think this is, Cory came after me recently on Twitter. So I tweeted in response to a video of Elizabeth Warren doing like a goofy little dance at one of her events. I tweeted that uh, I know you're terrible advisors are telling you to dance, but, you know, really the trick is just be yourself, no more, no less. And I use the word authentic in there, be your authentic self, no more, no less. So, of course, all the, you know, social justice warrior, identity-obsessed authoritarians came after me, and I committed the uh, wrong think of using the word authentic uh, in context of talking about a woman, so therefore I'm a a terrible, terrible sexist, and I'm, you know, doing sexist media tropes against women. And uh, so Cory Booker jumped in on that and was like, raise your hand if you know why they're going after Elizabeth Warren's dance, but not after my dad jokes. To which I responded to him, actually, here are examples of me going after your dad jokes, because I have gone after his dad jokes repeatedly. And also, by the way, here's me going after Mayor Pete's goofy dance. So weird. I went after your dad joke. Now, you were using that as evidence of sexism. Like, oh, you didn't come after me, but you went after her. I wonder why that is. Is it because you're sexist? Well, no. Here's me actually going after your dad jokes. And here's me going after Mayor Pete's dance. So it's not like I'm only going after her dance because she's a woman when I went after his dance, too. And it's not like I'm only picking on her when I've picked on you repeatedly. And, oh, yeah, by the way, another thing I said to Cory Booker is I also went after you when it became clear you were the number one recipient of Big Pharma money. Ain't I a stinker? So uh, he tried to get his little virtue signaling brownie points on me, and I responded and slapped him down. But to me, 
that was that was an indication. The indication is he was he was trolling online looking for stuff to like, you know, put on his cape for Warren for. And that's a hint that like, yeah, eventually he's going to endorse Warren. That's what I think because he wouldn't have went out of his way to try to get some virtue signaling brownie points to defend another candidate if he didn't have plans in the future to do that. Um, so, yeah, I hope he feels good about himself and, uh, you know, his, <laughs> his, uh, he, he's such a strong ally. Oh, he, Cory Booker, he loves women. He loves women. He loves minorities. And he's just, you know, I'm, I'm not like these evil, mean lefties. By the way, the reason that I made that tweet is because it's accurate. Okay, I actually think just like there's been evidence of this in the past with how terrible Elizabeth Warren staffers are. Remember when she said in an interview, I think it was on CNN or MSNBC. Yeah, the primary was rigged against Bernie. We just learned that. And then like three days later, she came out. She was like, did I say rigged? What I meant to say, what happened was the sun was in my eyes. I didn't necessarily mean rigged. And maybe that's not that's not the right word. So her instincts are fine, Elizabeth Warren. And then her idiot advisors coach her out of her instincts. This has happened in the past. I think that's exactly what's happening with the dance. I think her staffers are telling her, you have to be more relatable. I don't think she has to be more relatable. I think she could just be herself. And who she is is a, a professorial technocratic wonk. I think that's, that's when I like her the best, when she's herself. Naturally, that's sexist to say something like that, that she's best when she's herself. Obviously, the not sexist position is to tell her, be cheery and dance. And that's what they did. Now, by the way, her, like, I think her main, I think her campaign advisor came after me. One of her staffers, top staffers, Joe Rosebars or something like that. And he was, he said, I'm one of her terrible staffers here. Maybe you didn't, you know, I forget exactly what he said, but it was some over the top, like, our amazing, wonderful, courageous boss. Like, uh, pump your brakes. I didn't even respond to him because it was so over the top. Um, but I think the reason why he was so touchy in response is because he knew I was right. He knew I was right. He knew that he was probably the person to tell her, like, be more cheery and dance. And then when somebody like me calls it out, oh, you're not allowed to say that, especially because you use the word authentic when talking about a woman. Therefore, you're a sexist. Therefore, now we're going to go after that. Well, that's a nice diversion from the fact that I probably nailed it. And you guys did tell her to cheer and be more be. Be more cheery and, and dance and try to be more relatable. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I think Cory Booker is going to endorse Elizabeth Warren. Um, I know half you didn't even know he was still running, but he was. So sayonara to Cory and also sayonara to Marianne Williamson. Okay. Now that the breaking news is out of the way. President Trump did an interview with Laura Ingram, and uh, he, admitting, he admitted something that should be a giant scandal. Are we sending more troops to the region as we say? Uh, we're sending more to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is paying us for it. You know, we're doing something that nobody's ever done. I said to Saudi Arabia, we have a very good relationship with Saudi Arabia. I said, listen, you're a very rich country. 
You want more troops? I'm going to send them to you, but you've got to pay us. They're paying us. They've already deposited $1 billion in the bank. Excuse you? Okay, he just admitted he's selling U.S. troops to a theocratic dictator. I don't know why this isn't the biggest scandal in the country right now. He admitted he's selling troops to Saudi Arabia to do their bidding, protect their oil fields. Now, by the way, I mean, this shouldn't even have to be said, but I'll say it. The whole thing about, oh, they deposited a billion dollars. There's no evidence of that at all. That's classic Trump. I'm just going to say whatever I want. Yeah, they deposited a billion dollars. Really? Do you have receipts on that, bro? He's not going to show it because it doesn't exist. But beyond that, let's say for a second that that's true. He acts like that makes it okay. Like, oh, yeah, they gave us a billion dollars. So obviously, American men and women, you know, from Wyoming and California and Hawaii and Nebraska, I'm now sending them to you. And if they happen to die while defending your oil field, so be it. We had a transaction. That's the way that we think of U.S. troops. That's the way we talk about U.S. troops. They're pawns to protect the petrodollar. Sold U.S. troops to Saudi Arabia. I'll send them to you, but you have to pay. Oh, is that dark. So in other words, U.S. troops are now a private mercenary army for theocratic dictators around the world and U.S. interests. Again, I don't know why this isn't the biggest story in the country right now. Now, I want you to imagine a scenario for me where instead of saying it about Saudi Arabia, he said it about Russia. He said, yeah, Vladimir Putin called me, and I said, Hey, listen, you, you know, you're a wealthy country, send me a billion dollars, and then we'll, uh, I'll give you your troops. I'll give you U.S. troops. If, he's, if he was selling U.S. troops to Russia, that would be the biggest story in the country. And everybody would quite correctly say, oh, that, this means you're a Putin puppet. This means that. Yeah, that's a fair point to make in that scenario. Absolutely. But since it's not Russia and it's Saudi Arabia, nobody bats an eyelash. And uh, same with, if it was Israel, same thing. People are like, yeah, well, that's what we do. What do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean? Israel, Saudi Arabia, we do whatever the hell they want, and we use our troops as pawns. That's what it is. So don't give me this rah-rah America BS. Don't give me this I love the troops nonsense. You wouldn't be selling them to use as pawns to protect Saudi Arabia if that, if that was the case. So this is abysmal. This is terrible. More people should be talking about this, and they're not. God forbid, if a different president said this about our troops, I think it would be the biggest scandal in the country. But since it's Trump and we just get bombarded all the time with scandal after scandal after scandal, outrage after outrage after outrage, sometimes the media misses like the biggest ones that are right in front of our nose. And this happens to be one of them. President Trump can't stop admitting to war crimes. He does it on TV. He does it seemingly every other week. Here he is with his guard down talking to Laura Ingram on Fox News, and he said this. Moved our troops out of Syria, on the border between Turkey and Syria. That turned out to be such a successful move, Laura. Look what happened. 
now they protect their own. They've been fighting over that border for a thousand years. Why should we do it? And then they say he left troops in Syria. You know what I did? I left troops to take the oil. I took the oil. The only troops I have are taking the oil. They're protecting the oil. I took well, the oil. We're taking the oil. oil. We're taking well, oil. maybe we will. Maybe we won't. They're protecting we, the facility. I don't know. Maybe we should take it. But we have the oil right now. The United States has the oil. So they say he left troops in Syria. No. I got rid of all of them other than we're protecting the oil. We have the oil. My favorite part of that is how Laura Ingram tries to help him. Laura Ingram's like, we're not taking it. We're protecting the facilities. Softball down the center of the plate. He's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm taking it. Well, I'm, maybe we should take it. Oh, you moron. I like how he also says, like, people are saying I'm keeping troops in Syria. I'm not keeping troops in Syria. I'm just keeping them there to protect the oil and take the oil. As if, as if that doesn't count. <laughs> as if it's like, no, 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 that doesn't count as troops in Syria when we have troops in Syria to steal their oil. Why would you think for a second that that doesn't count? That obviously counts. In fact, one could argue that's worse than than if they were there for other reasons, like just sitting there to be a buffer to protect the Kurds. Oh, my God, man. This guy. This guy. I'm taking the oil. We're taking the oil. Again, I know that this gets tedious and annoying because I say it all the time, virtually every day on this show, but you have to do this intellectual exercise to see how wild this is. Imagine any other country giving an interview to their state media, because that's what Fox News is for Trump, his state media. Um, And they say, yeah, we're in sovereign country X, and yeah, we're taking natural resource X from that country. If it was Russia, if it was Iran, even if it was the U.S. allies, it would be like, whoa, 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 what are you doing there? What are you doing, pal? But when it's us, he just thinks that that's totally normal. See, he's, he fully believes that the rules, the laws, they don't apply to us. And that's hilarious because one of the things Trump ran on was law and order. Now, law and order in political speak in the context of the U.S. is code word for I'm going to keep those evil minorities in line. That's what that is. We're going to do broken windows policing and stop and frisk, and I'm going to show them who's boss. That's what law and order is code word for in U.S. politics. But if you actually take a literal interpretation of law and order, that means that you think justice is blind, the law should be applied equally, and nobody's above it. But the position on foreign policy is the exact opposite. No, no, no. There is, we are the law. There are no laws. We'll bring up the law to make other people fall in line, but when it's us, oh, we're above it. We can do whatever we want. I could steal your oil, and there's nothing you could say about it or do about it. Oh, you want to try something about it? It reminds me of the Chappelle Show. Okay, sanction me with your army. Oh, that's right, UN. You don't have an army. Well, how about you? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> that's, that's the mindset. That's the mindset. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. Have you seen my guns? Have you seen my military? Have you seen my tanks? Have you seen my, my aircraft carriers? Do you know how much Raytheon and Boeing and Honeywell and Northrop Grumman run this country? You have no idea now, do you? Oh, it is a dark time. This is really dark. You could even, uh, Listen, I'm no fan of George W. Bush or Barack Obama. I think they're both also war criminals to differing degrees, but they're both war criminals. 
But imagine one of them says this. Bush, you could kind of imagine saying it, <laughs> to be fair. And I think Bush is still a worse president than Trump, at least to this point. When Trump's done, that may have changed. Um, but imagine Obama saying this. Uh, so we decided we're going to invade this sovereign country, and uh, we're going to take the oil. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> Everybody's like, what? It's not a thing. You can't do that. That's not on. The fact that, like, these are things that are not even on the menu of that which is supposed to be possible. And he's like, yeah, that's, uh, that's what we're doing. Dude, come on, man. Come on, man. I left the troops there, but don't worry, it doesn't count, because they're only there to steal <laughs> natural resources from a sovereign country. In a world that made sense, I'm going to quote Chomsky to end this segment. If the Nuremberg Laws were upheld, every post-World War II U.S. president would have been hanged. I mean, you can't get a more clear example of that than hearing Trump say this. Because if anybody else said that, the international community would flip out, call it a rogue regime, say that there should be regime change, and then they would try that person for war crimes. Okay. Oh shit. I got to go. I got one more that I have to go to with Trump with the same graphic behind me. I'm going to give you why he attacked Suleimani. Okay, here we go. We might now know the reason why Trump decided to attack Soleimani, or at least we might know the biggest reason. So there's reporting on this, and here's what we learned. President Donald Trump told associates that he assassinated Iran's top military leader last week in part to appease Republican senators who will play a crucial role in his Senate impeachment trial the Wall Street Journal reported on Thursday. In a lengthy piece detailing how the president's top advisors coalesced behind the strike on Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, the journal reported that Trump had told associates he felt pressure from the senators. One of Trump's most outspoken supporters, GOP Senator Lindsey Graham, appears to be the only congressional lawmaker briefed about his plan to assassinate Soleimani in the days leading up to the strike. That's incredible. And one of the reasons why it's incredible is, dude, they were going to acquit you anyway. They were going to acquit you anyway. You didn't think they were going to acquit you? Now, it's possible that, you know, the likes of Lindsey Graham and maybe some other hawkish Senate Republicans, they just use this and, and maybe dropped a comment or two, a hint or two, to let Trump know, like, well, how you would ensure you get acquitted is if you, huh. That might be what, what was going to happen, but they were going to acquit him anyway. And it's kind of amazing that he didn't know that they were going to acquit him anyway. If he didn't do this, they still would have acquitted him. My dude, the Democrats need over 20 votes, 20 Republican senators. That's mission impossible. That ain't happening. That ain't happening on a boat. That ain't happening with a goat. That ain't happening in a moat. 
but he said he felt pressure, which leads me to believe that they were just, the neocons were being like clever about this and trying to scare Trump into doing it by making him think, oh, maybe if I don't do it, they'll impeach me. I mean, if, if Lindsey Graham is the only one who knew about it, then a possible scenario is he told Lindsey Graham, and Lindsey Graham was acting as like the intermediary between Trump and the other hawkish Republicans who wanted to extract a pound of flesh from Trump here so they can acquit him and get something out of it too. Now, again, what I would have told Trump is, dude, they're going to acquit you anyway. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do it. But this is what the reporting says. Now, I should also add, because I think it's super important, I don't think this was the only reason. I really don't. And we went over, in the original segment I did on this, uh, we went over quite a few things that um, I think are important in the context of this conversation. So, for one thing, uh, Suleimani, like, literally did had like a social media battle with Donald Trump where he repeatedly would tweet at him, or I'm sorry, not tweet, I don't think he had Twitter, he had Instagram. He would do all these posts about Trump, and uh, I'm sure that some of those things made it into Trump's briefing, his daily briefing, assuming Trump read them, which he probably didn't. Um, so it's possible that there was some, he felt like he hated the guy because he'd seen the posts, because you know how online Trump is. The other thing is uh, the original reporting that there, he was angry over the embassy protests in Iraq. There were embassy protests. And the embassy protests came about because Trump had previously done drone strikes on Shia militia. And then, so the chain of events was one U.S. contractor died. Do we know how or why? No. But they blamed the Shia militias, and then they bombed the Shia militias, killing dozens of people who were in the Shia militias. That led to those protests at the U.S. Embassy, Shia protesters who demanded the embassy be closed. And then Trump was angry at the protests and said, well, I'll just take out the top Iranian general. That was the original chain of events that we were told. Um, again, other factors could include the social media stuff. Other factors could improve, include neocon pressure. But in this case, what they're saying is, no, it actually had to do with impeachment. And Trump thought for whatever reason, if I take out this Iranian general, the Republican senators will love it. By the way, he's right. They do love it. But that will ensure that I get acquitted. So this may have something to do with impeachment. I said it before, man. I'll say it again. It is amazing to me. We live in a Twilight Zone episode because Trump is effectively going to assassinate a top Iranian general with impunity. That's illegal. Under U.S. law, international law, that's unconstitutional. He's going to get away with that completely, but they're still trying to impeach over a phone call. Shows you how out of whack the moral compass is in Washington, D.C. But, you know, I don't know if I fully buy that this is the reason he did it, but it's very possible it's one of the reasons he did it. And um, what a terrible scenario that is. I mean, we have one of the two major parties are just it's full of thugs and criminals. And, you know, the Democrats are not good. I don't I don't don't get it twisted. They're really bad, too. <laughs> but this is like you needed to commit an extrajudicial murder to ensure that they would get your back or you thought you had to do that? That says a lot about you guys now, doesn't it? Okay.
now the the United States and Iran and our relations and they do a really good job, believe it or not, on CNN. This is a, a rare instance where I will be giving CNN credit. I'm really happy about this next video because CNN actually told the truth about the United States and Iranian relations. It's a very, very, very rare secular talk segment, as all of you know, that I give credit to CNN, but this is one of those segments. So enjoy the short but accurate history lesson that you're about to get here. There's little love lost between Iran and the United States. Relations between the two countries have been troubled for more than half a century. But where did the conflict start? To understand that, we need to go back to the 1950s and this man, Mohammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh, who became prime minister in 1951, was key in nationalizing the country's British-controlled oil fields. As a result, the British enlisted the U.S. to get rid of him. In 1953, the CIA and MI6 backed the coup, ousting Mossadegh, restoring instead Iran's monarch, the Shah. But the Shah became unpopular at home for his lavish spending, ostentatious lifestyle, and the torture of dissidents. That all changed in 1979. The Islamic Revolution ushered in change, forcing the Shah to flee the country. The high-ranking Shia religious leader Ayatollah Khomeini returned from exile in February to become Iran's supreme leader. Later that year, amid Death to America chants, Iranian students stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, taking 90 people hostage, including 66 Americans. Ultimately, all the hostages were released in a siege lasting 444 days. But the damage was done. The U.S. designated Iran a state sponsor of terrorism three years later. In the 1980s, Iran and Iraq became embroiled in a war. The U.S. was officially neutral, but in a bid to contain Iran, started backing Iraq and its leader Saddam Hussein. The move put the U.S. and Iran even further at odds. The tension ratcheted up toward the end of the Iran-Iraq War. In 1988, the U.S. shot down an Iranian passenger plane over Iranian territorial waters when it mistakenly identified it as a fighter jet. It killed all 290 people on board. When Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, the U.S. and Iran suddenly shared Saddam Hussein as a common enemy. Although it did little to improve relations, U.S. sanctions against Iran accelerated under the Clinton administration. In 2002, a year before the start of the Iraq War, President Bush included Iran in what he called the axis of evil. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. Due to concerns Tehran was trying to develop nuclear weapons to threaten the U.S. The Iraq War resulted in years of violence, leaving a fractured state and some argue a power vacuum that led to the rise of ISIS. The terror group became a common enemy for two longtime rivals. Iran-backed militias and U.S. troops both battled ISIS in Iraq and Syria. In 2015, hopes for a thaw in relations between Iran and the U.S. grew. The two countries alongside European nations signed a nuclear deal that granted limited sanction relief to Iran in exchange for limits on nuclear activities. 
But after U.S. President Donald Trump pulled out of the nuclear agreement, that we cannot and will not make this certification. And ISIS forces were pushed back in Iraq and Syria. Tensions started rising again. The killing of Qasem Soleimani at the start of 2020 was a dramatic escalation and puts the relationship in uncharted waters. Well, you know, congratulations on to that guy for being hired, and I'm very sorry about your firing, which will be coming very shortly. Because, <laughs> wow, that was a really, really good segment. That was well done. You know, I found that uh, as a general rule when I watch, like, PBS, most of the time they do a decent job, PBS. Every now and then they'll swing and miss, but very often they do a decent job. CNN almost never does a decent job. This is really rare, but that was spot on. I mean, that history was just accurate. Um, So, I mean, that leads to the question, imagine if Americans really knew the history here between the United States and Iran, what our opinions would be. Even without knowing the history, 56% of the country is against what Trump just did. That's without knowing the history. Imagine if we were highly educated and we knew every step of the way what was going on. If they knew that this guy was a key ally of ours in fighting and defeating ISIS. If they knew that he was on a peace mission. He didn't include this in the video, but, and I'm not sure he knew, to be fair. But uh, Soleimani was um, on a peace mission when he was killed, trying to ease tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia at the behest of the Iraqi prime minister. Um, If people knew that, I think that number would be even higher against what Trump did here. Um, If they knew about the 1953 U.S. coup, because we wanted to keep our hands on the cheap oil. If they knew about the United States shooting down the passenger jet. If they knew about the United States backing Saddam Hussein during the Iran-Iraq war and okaying his use of chemical weapons and selling them to him. That's, see, that's the big one. Speaking to my, my buddy who's Iranian, he tells me that, like, most of the people alive today don't, you know, they, the 1953 coup, yeah, they're against it, but it's, it's in the past. It's so long ago that it didn't directly impact a lot of the people around today. But the thing that did is the Iran-Iraq war, us backing Iraq, and being cool with Saddam Hussein using chemical weapons on civilian populations in Iran. That's a, a scar where people still to this day, that was only in the 1980s, people to this day are, that's a, a key difference. And people in Iran are rightfully angry at the United States of America over that one. Um, and then, of course, with the, with the nuclear agreement, they were following it. They were abiding by it. The IAEA was, verified that. But Trump came in and ripped it up. And we violated the agreement. That's, that's not something you hear often. That's not something that's said often, is that the United States were the initial violators of the agreement. And also, look at the unintended consequences of that are, who's going to want to sign a deal with the United States about anything ever again? We pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. We pulled out of the Iranian nuclear agreement. Why would anybody trust a deal with the United States? Let's say they sign it under a Democratic administration. How do they know the next Republican administration is going to come in and rip it up immediately? So there are far-reaching consequences 
uh, over our actions on this. But again, I will say that's a really good job by CNN. And, um, you know, I think it's important to do this segment because, guys, I'm not like I'm not arguing from a narrative here. If they do a good job, I will come out here and say they did a good job. And that's exactly what I'm doing right now. So it's not like, you know, I'm square peg round holing some of these things. All, I'm just telling you what's happening and, and what it is. And if somebody deserves credit, I'll give them credit. So CNN, massive credit for running this video. I wish that uh, we learned this history in class and school. And I wish that, you know, there were more documentaries about this stuff because the history is so important to get the context of why we're doing what we're doing today. And if we were really educated on this stuff, I think that number would be even better than it is now. 56% against the strike is good, but we'd be talking about 65, 70% of the country against the strike if we were really educated on this stuff. So uh, well done. Okay. All right, here it is. All of you have been asking for it. Here it comes, here it comes. So the media reported yesterday that a Bernie Sanders strategy against Elizabeth Warren leaked. Now, I'm going to give you, um, you know, what the supposed alleged strategy is here, but... Um, just keep in mind, there's a question as to whether or not this is actually from the Bernie campaign. But nonetheless, here it is. If they are leaning Warren, I like Elizabeth Warren, optional. In fact, she's my second choice. But here's my concern about her. The people who support her are highly educated, more affluent people who are going to show up and vote Democratic no matter what. She's bringing no new bases into the Democratic Party. We need to turn out disaffected working-class voters if we're going to defeat Trump. So, the media made a huge deal out of this. They went to Elizabeth Warren with it. They threw a softball for her down the center of the plate. They teed this up for her, and here's her response to the accusation that Bernie's campaign is showing that to all of their staffers and telling them to go out and go after Warren. Here's what, here's what she says. So she says the factionalism led to Hillary's defeat in 2016, and uh, what we need to do is unite as a party. 
This is what she's saying. She also said, I was disappointed that Bernie sent his people to trash me. Um, so first, let me just state the obvious. You're not supposed to unite in the primary. The whole point of the primary is to talk about the differences between the candidates so we pick the one we like best to go up against the Republicans. That's the point of the primary. The whole point of the primary is the disagreement. The whole point of the primary is to draw distinctions. So do the unify thing is messed up. And also, the, uh, the factionalism argument, to blame Bernie for that, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, you've said previously, and you know it's true, they rigged the primary against Bernie in 2016. So now to go out there and accuse him of factionalism because he maybe drew a distinction with you, that's low. That's low. You knew they rigged it against him. You said in the past that they rigged it against him, and now you're blaming him for the factionalism? Why? Because every now and then he occasionally made a correct anti-Hillary Clinton argument where he said, hey, I disagree with you on this policy, Hillary. How dare you, buddy? How dare you point out accurate differences between you and your opponents in a primary? Come on, Elizabeth Warren. What are you doing here? What are you doing? Um, Now, here's the kicker. It might not be from Bernie's team at all. So uh, take a look at this. Bernie Sanders volunteer hits back. Here's what actually happened. A random user who's only ever posted once before, before posted that document in the Sanders volunteer Slack group. A moderator promptly removed it and stated that it was not a campaign source. So, you know, listen. This story blew up massively. And all these articles about how Bernie Sanders sends his surrogates to trash Elizabeth Warren, and all of them framed against Bernie Sanders, and clearly so. So it is possible that this is a story that is, like, planted, that it was a plan from uh, Elizabeth Warren's team to make it look like Bernie's team is trashing me, and how dare you, I'm the person who can unify. That's what Elizabeth Warren's argument, I could unify the country, and we need to be in favor of unifying and all that stuff, unifying Democrats or whatever the case may be. And, um... It's possible it was a top-down strategy, and they planted it, knowing it's not from Bernie's team. Or it's possible that, you know, it is from Bernie's team. So if it's not from Bernie's team, man, that's like a, a devious plan <laughs> on, on the part of the media and the Warren campaign. Um, but if it is from Bernie's team, and here's the most important point, guys, that distinction that they're trying to draw with Warren that's accurate. Guys, there's been countless mainstream media articles on this. This isn't like, you know, hidden. This isn't like forbidden knowledge. And it's not factually false. In fact, it's factually true. The demographic, uh, demographic numbers show that Elizabeth Warren has surprisingly, to my surprise too, by the way, guys, but she's gotten, uh, you know, supporters that are more in line with Hillary Clinton's supporters. They are, you know, whiter and older and more affluent and have more college degrees. Now, that's just a fact. That's just a fact. So to say, like, oh, you know, Elizabeth Warren might not be the person who could bring in new bases of support, people of color, working class people, people who don't have college degrees, to say that is, is just a reflection of what the numbers already are. So to... to Pull the, how dare you, sir, card over this is so stupid. 
because anybody who looks at the numbers is going to go, oh, but they're correct. So I, I honestly, I don't care if it was from the Bernie campaign or not from the Bernie campaign, because either way, the reaction from mainstream media and from Elizabeth Warren is preposterous. How dare you draw a distinction with me in a primary where the whole point of the primary is to draw distinctions? And how dare you bring up factual numbers like the demographic groups and, and the basis of support? I mean, you know, it goes back to the Hillary Clinton thing. Maybe the problem isn't that he's pointing out your policy favor, uh, failures. Maybe the problem is your policy failures. In the case of Elizabeth Warren, it's slightly different, but it's the same, um, it's the same rebuttal that they're giving. Like, how dare you, you know, point that out? Yeah, but that's true. So you can't get mad. Truth is always a defense. So you can't get mad unless you're mad at yourself for only attracting those kinds of voters, or overwhelmingly, I should say, attracting those kinds of voters. Because, of course, she has some that violate that trend. But she does have way more of the older, whiter, more affluent, more college degrees voters than Bernie does. So it's, it's just, guys, it's such a manufactured controversy. And then, of course, Bernie came out, and he's like, we're not telling anybody to trash Warren. That's what Bernie said about this. Like, no, because, guys, how many times has Bernie, much to my dismay, I get upset because he does it too much. He goes out there, and he's like, Elizabeth Warren is my friend. And he bends over backwards to not attack her. The strongest attack I've seen from Bernie against Warren is when he was on stage with her in one of the debates, and he said, I'm the only person on this stage to vote against Trump's, all of Trump's military budget. That was the strongest attack Bernie had done against Warren, and he didn't call her out by name. It was like a you know, a disagreement by implication where people have to connect the dots. I mean, come on. This guy who said all the time, like, no, this is my friend, I don't think he would, you know, green light something like that. But even if he did green light something like that, it is factually accurate, and that's the point of a primary is to draw distinctions. If you want to say, hey, yeah, but put the demographic stuff aside and just go on policy. That I can agree with you on. That I think is a fair criticism. But that's not the criticism the media is making, and that's not the criticism Warren is making. Their criticism is, how dare you disagree at all and make distinctions at all in a primary, and why are you trashing me? It is a manufactured controversy. It is so over the top, their reaction. And let me, let me tell you guys something. This has a lot to do with the fact that a poll just came out which predicted the last six, ele six elections correctly that Bernie Sanders is leading in Iowa by three points. The very last poll was Bernie Sanders leading in Iowa by three points. Again, this poll was predicted Iowa right the last, I think, six times. So... They see that, and now mainstream media is flipping out. Establishment Democrats are flipping out, and they're going to muck up all these fake controversies to try to take down Bernie. Be cognizant of that, because you're going to see a lot of it going forward. You're going to see a lot of negative attention directed at Bernie, and that is exactly why. They don't want him to win, and the poll show he's doing very, very well, so now it's time to throw some Hail Mary passes. That's what this is. All right, I love this next story. I can talk about this forever, this next one. A Trump supporter was asked the most basic political question of all time. I have to show you this video. This is from Crooks and Liars. Take a look. What is something that you believe the president has done well? I just, I'm not really sure it is. I just support him. 
that video is amazing. <laughs> that's something else, man. That is that is beautiful. That is just chef's kiss. Mwah. Okay, so um, I have a lot to say about this. First of all, let me um, preface my comments. Preface? Is that the word I'm looking for? Let me prelude my comments. Prelude, preface. Before I say my commentary on this video, let me tell you this. I'm not... I'm not going to put all Trump voters in one camp because that's not fair. There are many Trump voters who were two times Obama voters who flipped to Trump. And those voters I'm a lot more sympathetic to than the ones who, you know, are like David Duke and are voting for him because he's a bigot and because he said bigoted things. So there are very different kinds of Trump voters out there. There are some voters who like the hawkish stuff he said. There are some voters like the non-interventionist stuff he said. So you just can't, you know, paint it with a broad brush, okay? But there is, a, you know, there's a, a segment of Trump voters out there who we don't talk about enough on this show. And we should talk more about them on this show. Um, who I'm now going to call the feelings over facts voters. And that's what you just saw right there. There's something about Donald Trump. What Oprah is to the rest of the country, Donald Trump is to disaffected white dudes. There's something about them that they can't get enough of. They can't put their finger on it. They can't tell you exactly why. They have no idea what he's doing policy-wise, but it has something to do with how he makes them feel. He makes them feel empowered. I think it's one of those things where it's like, Donald Trump is a failed son, went bankrupt six times, inherited hundreds of millions of dollars. His businesses went bankrupt six times, I should say. Inherited hundreds of millions of dollars. And he just kind of forced his way to be the most powerful person in the world through nothing but bravado and lies. And I think on some level, these guys respect that because they themselves feel like frauds and like they've accomplished nothing. But Trump gives them hope because he just kind of, through nothing with, through nothing but bluster and arrogance, like forced his way to be the most powerful person in the world. And so it's a feelings thing. It's a, oh my God, this guy did it. And this guy's taken on everybody. And it's the fact that he, like, you know, puffed his chest out, and Trump's main thing is like, no, wrong, wrong, fake news, fake news, not true, I'm right about everything, everybody else is wrong about everything, piss off. It's that attitude that guys like this are like, ooh, it makes me feel a certain way. Remember when, I think it was Chris Matthews said about Obama, he gives me a tingle up my leg or a tingle up my spine or something like that? That's these dudes with Trump. Like, oh, oh, the strength. Oh, the arrogance. Oh, it's so hot. Yes. Oh, Trump. That's how these guys feel. Now, it's a sprinkle of that. And then with some of these guys, I mean, let's keep it totally real here. It, it's white identity politics. It's like they look at this guy and they're like, as Jesse Lee Peterson says, he's the great white hope. He's the great white hope. He's a guy who I relate to because he's got a similar background to me, except minus all the money for all these voters. But like, yeah, he's just like a, like a regular white dude, and he's proud to be white, and he doesn't, you know, he talks about how we need to ban all Muslims, and we got to ban the Mexicans and their criminals and rapists coming in this country. And I think that that is, is part of it, too. But what we know is not the case, is that it has nothing to do with policy. He's, he can't name a single policy that he likes that Trump, guys, I couldn't name a single policy I like that Trump did. Are you kidding me? When he said we're not going to do TPP. That I like. Now, he slipped in provisions of the TPP into the renegotiation of NASA, which they're now trying to get passed, 
and it probably will pass, by the way, so buckle up for that. But, um, like, he can't name a single – you can't name a single thing. And I don't know. I just support him. But why? Why do you support him? It's got nothing to do with the policies. So this is a feelings over facts voter. This is a feelings over policies voter. Because I guarantee you, the policies Trump is putting into place are not helping this dude. They're hurting him. Seven million people lost health insurance under Donald Trump. That alone is reason to get this guy out of office. Are you kidding me? We went in the wrong direction when it comes to that? Still, 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And we're talking about the economy is so great. No, the stock market is great, which is great for the top 1% in corporations. Not for regular people. And the list goes on and on. So it's really something when you see the feelings over facts voters up close and you realize, oh, this, is, this guy isn't part of, you know, a coalition of voters who were screwed by the outsourcing in the Midwest, who voted for Obama twice and then Trump. This guy is a feelings over facts guy who just likes the way that Trump makes him feel. To him, he's watching a TV show and he found his favorite character. That's it. Now, as much sympathy as I have for the two times Obama voter who flipped Trump, who we can get back to voting for lefties, I feel no sympathy for this guy. He just pisses me off and annoys me. And my whole point in doing this segment is to say, don't ever, ever be that guy. Always base it on policy. Okay, next. The Hill has an article about a state politician in Vermont, and we might be seeing the beginning of a new trend here. A state senator in Vermont introduced legislation that would make it illegal for anyone under the age of 21 to use or possess a cell phone. The bill, sponsored by State Senator John Rogers, says cell phones have been linked to loss of life among teenagers, from distracted driving to cyberbullying that results in suicide. The Bear, Bar, Bear, Montpellier, Pellier, <laughs> I can't talk today, Times, uh, Argus reported. What an interesting name, Wednesday. The bill text says, the internet and social media, accessed primarily through cell phones, are used to radicalize and recruit terrorists, fascists, and other extremists. Cell phones have often been used by mass shooters of younger ages for research on previous shootings. Violation would result in a misdemeanor that is punishable by maximum of a year behind bars and a $1,000 fine. Rogers, however, said he doesn't expect the measure to become law, adding that he introduced the bill to make a point. for man come on you're wasting everybody's time and whatnot but um i'm not so sure that this is not going to get legs under it and that's one of the reasons i'm covering it is because everything starts out as like oh i'm just saying here like yeah it's just an idea and then sometimes it becomes law like um for a long time we had fruity vape flavors that were uh, legal, and then just the other day, Trump banned him. Uh, we covered uh, his roundtable on that, where he had people from the industry and experts, and he was talking to all of them. And um, 
he agreed with them that, yeah, let's just ban all the fruity flavors because, oh, my God, what about the children? Yeah, but what if the, an adult wants to have it? What if an adult who works a nine-to-five and is a productive person and takes care of their family, what if they like mango flavor jewel or, you know, whatever, fill-in-the-blank cotton candy, whatever the hell you like? What about that? Can they have it? No, according to Trump. But that started out as just an idea, and people never knew. No, I mean, they, come on, the industry of flavored vapes is pretty big already. So, what, we're going to fight back against that? Well, in the end, the government did, and the government won. So, and now we're getting this movement on, with cell phones. Age 21 and up for cell phones. Now, am I here arguing that there are no negative consequences of younger people having cell phones? No, that's not what I'm arguing. I'm 31 years old, and I think that there's, you know, there are negative consequences of me using a cell phone. So, of course, I think it's the case for younger people as well. However, this is not the government's business to get involved in this and to try to stop people under the age of 21. That's an old age to get a cell phone. I mean, you would have a much more reasonable conversation if you said, eh, 16 or something like that. No, he went to 21. And he says, oh, sometimes it's used to recruit terrorists and fascists and mass shooters. Yeah, in like 0.01% of cases, 0.001% of cases, 99% of the time, you know what it's used for? Hey, let's go meet at the pizzeria and have some food. (laughs) That's what it's used for. You want something to eat? Oh, you want to hang out? Netflix and chill? Like, this is what it's used for. Or, hey, I'm in conversation with my friend and he said something I'm not sure it's true. Let me look it up. That's what it's used for. Oh, let me go on social media and see what my friends are up to. That's what it's used for. Now, again, you could argue there's some negative consequences along with that, too. Oh, you go on social media, some people feel ostracized, some people feel like the world's against them. You know, there might be impacts on that for psychological health, in some extreme cases, suicide. That's all true, but uh, this is an instance where I'm pulling the hell no card, and I'm telling the government to get out, because let the families make their own decisions. Let the, If the parents want the kid to have a phone when the kid is 10 years old, because, you know, at soccer practice, you never know what time it ends, and you got to go pick the kid up, and sometimes it's 30 minutes early, sometimes it's 30 minutes late. And so you go to pick the kid up when they call you on the phone or text you and say, hey, mom and dad, come pick me up. The government's going to step in. No, I don't like that. You, you, I can't let the kid use that because there's somebody who might become a terrorist if they have cell phones under the age of 21. Stop trying to make the world like a giant padded room where you can run into walls and nothing bad ever happens. There is something to be said about freedom. Now, I've called myself a libertarian leftist before on this show. Libertarian means on social issues. And by libertarian, I, I mean the classic definition of live and let live. You do whatever the hell you want as long as you're not hurting anybody else. On social issues, that's my belief. That, those are, that's where I fall with my policies. You should be able to, if you want to do drugs, you should be able to do drugs. Uh, if you want to smoke flavored vape, you should be able to do that. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, you should be able to do whatever you want on social issues. And there's another one of those things here where it's like the government is just getting too involved in people's lives. You're never going to put that genie back in the bottle, dog. I'm sorry. When it comes to cell phones, you're going to put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, maybe you would have had a better case if you proposed this bill in 1995 when they were using the big Zach Morris cell phones. Remember that on Saved by the Bell? You got the big cell phones. It's like the size of a brick, and it's like, sick guys. Like, maybe back then if you said, uh, not until you're 21, people, you know, it would have been less unreasonable. But today, in the age of smartphones, it's such an interconnected world. I'm sure there are people who need their phones for work, where they're legally old enough to be able to work, and they need a cell phone to be able to work. And you're going to say 21. I mean, it's just, it's so pie in the sky. 
And I think the point that this guy was making, he actually ended up making the opposite point even better. If he wanted to make the argument that, hey, cell phones have a really deleterious effect on, on the public, there's a decent argument to be made there. But his bill is so ridiculous and his examples are so absurd that he's invoking the counter-arguments and the counter-arguments are a lot stronger. So, you know, mission failed. Um, let's get rid of these silly ideas. Let's be more realistic about the future. And also, let me just say this. We live in a country where automation is replacing how many jobs? How many people are losing their livelihoods, losing their jobs as a result of automation? And instead of saying, wow, let's regulate the kind of automation that are getting people's livelihoods taken away, the response from this politician is, I don't think kids should have cell phones until they're 21 or over. Piss off, man. You're ridiculous. Okay. Now we're going to go to Julian Castro's campaign advisor. This story should give you hope for the future of politics in this country because it is possible to change minds. It is possible to get people to be in favor of good things. <laughs> and I don't mean that in the top press. Well, I'm in favor of good things and against bad things. I mean actual good things. I mean like, hey, nobody should go bankrupt because of health care. So take a look at this. Derek Eden, this is from Huffington Post, a former deputy campaign, campaign manager for Julian Castro, an ex-chairman of the Iowa Democratic Party, announced his support for Bernie Sanders' presidential bid Friday, handing the Vermont senator one of his most prominent endorsements from an Iowa Democrat. Eden, a 36-year-old veteran of Barack Obama's 2008 and 2012 presidential campaigns, does not fit the typical profile of a Sanders endorser, but a multi-year bout with, I'm going to butcher this, trigeminal neuralgia, a rare nerve disease that causes acute facial pain, has ruined his finances and reshaped his politics. The political consultant whose condition has cost, him, has cost his family an estimated $40,000 in out-of-pocket costs and brought them to the brink of bankruptcy said Sanders' record won him over. Eden is now an outspoken proponent for Medicare for All and an admirer of Sanders' consistent support for the plan. Something that Bernie has that other candidates don't is he has that background and that consistency, Eden said. He's not just for Medicare for All or no corporate money while he's running for president. He's been there all along. It really pisses me off when people say, we can't do Medicare for All. We're seeing constant handouts for corporations. We're seeing endless wars, nepotism, and corruption all over the place, he added. It's naive to think we can't expand one of the most popular and one of the most successful government programs that we've ever seen be able to provide health care. Man. This story touched me. It touched me because what you're seeing here is a person who ran into some real-life struggles who now is going, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Why are we not all on this page already? Why are we not all for Medicare for All? Why are we not all pushing for it relentlessly? Why are all the candidates not seriously for it and, and Serious in that and not just using it as a marketing gimmick like some people like Andrew Yang, for example, where he admits, I'm not for the policy, but I'm going to use the terminology. This is when the rubber meets the road and real life beats you down and, and you have the light bulb moment. Now, listen, man, I'm ready and willing to welcome people like Derek into the 
fold with open arms. I'm ready and willing to accept former Trump voters, former Ted Cruz voters, who I'm famously less sympathetic towards. But if they change their mind and they notice a good thing when they see it and they understand that this policy is definitely doable and it's just catching us up to the rest of the developed world, well, then that's wonderful. The more the merrier. I want new voters in the fray who've never voted before. I want disaffected voters. I want independents. I want moderates. I want lefties. I want conservatives. I want everybody to see the light. And then we will fight relentlessly until we win on this front. Because, guys, I got news for you. The divide here is not left versus right. The divide is the powerful elites versus the working class. And so when every other country has one version or another of a universal health care system, when most developed countries have free at the point of service health care, paid for via taxes, and they save money that way, there's no reason we can't do that. The only thing standing in our way are the big pharma companies and the for-profit health insurance companies. As soon as we defeat them, get rid of the corruption, get rid of the special interest money, the sky's the limit because we'll save money and cover everybody. And this is what Bernie's been fighting for forever. He's raised consciousness on this. You know, it, it's super popular now. Now, we're going to have to fight back against the propaganda against it. But it takes a lot of propaganda to drill into somebody's head that everybody having health care free at the point of service is a bad thing. It takes a lot of propaganda to get people to that point. Now, that propaganda was working for a long time, and it's started to fail within the past three years. So... But we need a full court press. We need all systems go. And I welcome Derek into this fight. And I really hope that, uh, you know, his finances are okay. Because nobody should have to go through what Derek's going through. Nobody should have to go through that. And unfortunately, so many people do go through similar circumstances. 500,000 people go bankrupt every year because of medical bill. That's a moral outrage. And we need to treat it as such. This is every bit as important as the civil rights movement and women's suffrage. This is really a a human rights push that we're going for here. The battles aren't over. We're not at the end of history. And the next movement is for Medicare for all, to make sure everybody has health care is a right and not a privilege. Next. One more on Medicare for all for everybody. This is an important story from a few weeks back that uh, I just had to talk to you about. It's, it's, uh, it's something that's been underreported, but it can have a serious impact on public policy. The campaign against Medicare for All is spending millions. Progressives, not so much. It's a one-sided assault, said a progressive member of Congress. So uh, they go on in this article to explain that there are various groups that are doing an onslaught against Medicare for All. There's a group called the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, which is an industry front group representing private health insurers, hospitals, and pharmaceutical companies. And they've spent at least $1 million in television advertisements blasting um, Medicare for All. And that's in Iowa alone. Now, this same group, by the way, is also ghostwriting anti-Medicare for All op-eds for state lawmakers as well. So their tentacles are everywhere, man. The for-profit health insurance companies' tentacles are everywhere, trying everything they can, pulling out all the stops to prevent Medicare for all and make you think it's, you know, going to lead to a dystopian future where your health care situation is way worse than it is now. 
when, of course, the opposite is true. Now, beyond that, you have the One Nation uh, Super PAC, which is tied to Mitch McConnell, and they announced a $4 million TV, radio, and digital advertising campaign blasting Medicare for All. So $5 million being pumped into the anti-Medicare for All movement. And make no mistake about it, it is going to be sheer, unadulterated propaganda. That's what it is. In fact, we covered one of the, one of the uh, ads recently. We did, it was an ad from the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future where they're going, and by the way, they don't stop. They don't give an inch. They don't just stop at Medicare for All is bad. They say public option. They say expanding the affordable care. They, anything that cuts into their profits, even a single penny, they're against and they will fight against relentlessly. So uh, the reason I'm telling you this in advance is very simple. When the question is asked by pollsters in even a minimally objective way, Medicare for All is wildly popular. Many polls have it above 60%. Now, you can phrase a question in a way where it's not to make it not popular. Do you support a big government takeover of health care that takes away your uh, freedom of choice? Everybody's going to say no to that, but it's all in, the, in how you phrase it. If you're asking the question in a minimally objective way, it's a very popular policy. But the reason why this propaganda is so important is they're going to try to trick you. They're going to try to trick you from now on. And they will, and, and corporate media will go right along with this. Medicare for all is now unpopular. Here's a poll that shows it. But once you dive into the specifics, you'll see it's BS. Guys, they already tried. What was the one that they did, they did recently? Um, they said it took away your choice. But the second that they changed the question to, oh, it takes away your choice of health insurer, but you still get to keep your doctor, then it bounced right back up above 50% again. So they're going to use the weasel words. They're going to be misleading. And when there's a $5 million campaign against Medicare for All and there's no money going in favor of Medicare for All, yes, they're going to move public, public opinion, but that's where you come in, and that's where I come in, and that's where Bernie's team comes in. And that's why every, where every actual lefty in the country comes in. Because your job is to relentlessly fight back against this propaganda. Your job is to educate yourself on the reality of Medicare for All, the cost of Medicare for All, the upsides of Medicare for All. And go out there and call out the lies where you see them, because they are going to lie. They're going to lie at worst, mislead at best. And just know there will be an impact unless we fight back aggressively. And the biggest threat we have going into this fight in favor of Medicare for All is actually the corporate Democrats. Because we already know the Republicans are going to be against Medicare for All. We already know the for-profit industry front groups are going to be against Medicare for All. That's a given. And we're going to knuckle up and get ready to fight them. But we need allies in this fight where we push back against the relentless propaganda and call it lies. So that's why you need to be involved. You need to be vocal and you need to be upfront because this is, it, this is a difficult fight. Because we're not going to get any help from the corporate Democrats, the centrist Democrats, and the, Repu the Republican establishment and the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. They're totally against us. So we got $5 million on one side, nothing on the other side. Man, we better speak up and we better be aggressive. Don't let them define the terms. Don't let them push their propaganda unrebutted. Knuckle up because it's going to get dirty. Okay, next.
All right, let's go to uh, John Kerry and Joe Biden. Joe Biden held an event over the weekend where John Kerry defended him on his vote for the Iraq war. And the argument went something like this. Yes, Biden voted for the Iraq war, but he didn't really vote for it because he just gave Bush the option to go into war. He didn't know Bush would actually do it. That's the argument. Now, I'm not kidding. That's the argument. Sure, he voted for it, but it doesn't really count as a vote for it because he thought he was just giving Bush the option. He didn't know Bush would actually go. This is how weaselly they're getting. And as people on Twitter pointed out, effectively that argument is, I don't know, we're not war criminals. We're just idiots who were duped. So here, let's go to the tape and see what Kerry is saying versus what Biden was saying at the time. something that's extra messed up about not just owning your record. Just own it. Just own it. Yeah, I did it. I did it, and I was wrong, and uh, here's why I made the decision, but ultimately it turned out being the bad thing. Um, But that's not what he's doing. He's going with, yeah, I voted for it, but it doesn't count because of reasons X, Y, and Z. That is so weaselly and so disingenuous, and let me tell you something. If this is any indicator, and it is, Trump is going to eat this guy's lunch, dude. Trump is going to eat this guy's lunch because half the time he's incoherent and the other half the time he's not incoherent. He's just making terrible points. (laughs) So come on. I mean, it's just it's embarrassing at this point. Now, I, I also want to add this fact because this is a segment we did a while ago when it came to Hillary as well in the 2016 election. What they're not telling you is there was actually a third option on the war. So one of the options was what Hillary did and what um, Biden did, where they said, I'm voting for the authorization for use of military force. That's, that's the decision they made, and they have to own that. The middle path was you could vote for the war, but only if the U.N. also approves it. Now, if you had taken that middle path, we – you know, if enough people had taken that middle path, then we wouldn't have gone to war because the U.N. didn't approve it. The U.N. said this is an illegal war. 
So anybody who took that middle path, that was, even though it was a semi-vote for the war, it effectively would have been a vote against the war because the U.N. said no. Joe Biden, just like Hillary Clinton, did not take that middle path. Joe Biden took the pro-war path, and now he's not owning it, and he's being incredibly weaselly. And the reason he's doing this is because Bernie Sanders has repeatedly hit Biden over and over. He voted for the Iraq war. 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 And his response at this point has been... So now this is what he finally settled on as an official response, and it's embarrassing. Bringing out, you know, it's basically the equivalent of like, let me bring out my cousin or bring out my brother to like try to explain away where I messed up. And you sit there and you act like this is reasonable. He knows he's wrong, but he doesn't care because he's just trying to get elected. All it comes down to is himself aggrandizing himself. That's it. Okay, let's go final story of the day. Donald Trump's lie about stopping outsourcing and fighting for working people is becoming more and more apparent by the day. So this is an article that breaks down a specific angle of this controversy in Common Dreams. President Donald Trump is facing outrage from workers and labor rights advocates over his failure to take action as AT&T prepares to shift thousands of U.S. jobs overseas next year despite reaping a massive windfall from the 2017 Republican tax law. Axios reported Sunday that the telecom giant, which announced last year it received over $20 billion in tax cuts thanks to the GOP law, is poised to send thousands into the new year hunting for new jobs after assigning them to train their own foreign replacement. Man, that's evil. You lose your job and you have to train your replacement. And we just got billions of dollars in a tax cut. Quote, workers described shock and confusion when they were told during a scripted phone call that after a decade or longer at AT AT&T, they'd have to work for a contractor or resign, Axios reported. Some were told they could not apply for other jobs inside AT&T. Wow. According to Axios, three current or recently fired AT&T workers broke down in tears during phone interviews about the company's outsourcing that, quote, the sad reality is you've just been terminated without your severance, said one worker. You're at the mercy of a company that doesn't really want you. Trump, despite his campaign pledge to punish companies that send jobs overseas, has not spoken out about AT&T outsourcing. They, would, they wouldn't be doing it if I was president, Trump said, of corporate offshoring during a campaign rally in North Carolina in 2016. Sarah Blackwell, a former Florida-based attorney who represents displaced U.S. workers told Axios that American workers are tired of waiting for President Trump to do something on this issue. They've gone from great hope in President Trump's administration to great discouragement, Blackwell said. Wow. So um, the exact number that AT&T has outsourced and will outsource, 28,000 jobs. 28,000. 28,000. This is after getting billions of dollars in tax cuts. 
just so you know, in that tax law, it actually incentivized outsourcing. This is coming from a president who pretended like he was against outsourcing. Let me tell you something, man. This is as bad as it gets. And what this reminds me of is the carrier scandal. Remember when Trump made a whole show about how he was saving these carrier jobs at a, at a factory? Well, it was widely reported, but then low-key in the year afterwards, Carrier took taxpayer money as a subsidy, said they were going to keep the jobs here, and then they quietly, slowly but surely outsourced those jobs anyway. So it was even worse than if Trump did nothing because he got involved, gave them a big taxpayer subsidy, so hosed the taxpayers, and then they outsourced the jobs anyway. 93,000 jobs were outsourced in Trump's first year alone. That's an increase from Obama. It was 87,000 for Obama's last year. There was an increase in outsourcing from the anti-outsourcing president, where he pretended like he was anti-outsourcing. The guy's a fraud. He's not a real popular. Remember the GM plant? There was a GM plant in Lordstown, Ohio. They're shutting that one down, too. Trump isn't doing anything to stop this. He pretends, he acts like he's tough on these companies. I'm going to make them keep them here. Okay, go ahead, try. Do it. He's not going to do it. And he hasn't said anything about these people. Thousands of Americans lose their job, and they're forced to train they're foreign replacements. At the same time, the company's getting billions in tax breaks. That is unexcusable on top of, is it unexcusable or inexcusable? Whatever. It's both of those things. <laughs> it's not good. My heart goes out to these people, and we need a real populist in there who's going to make policy to help the American worker. That person's name is Bernie Sanders. All right, guys, that'll do it for the show today, baby. All right, love you guys. Um, I will talk to you soon. Is there, I think there's a Kyle and Corn, but we'll see. I got to ask Corn. He's got some stuff going on. But th there will likely be a Kyle and Corn. I'll say that this week. And then also, um, there will be a show again on Thursday. Uh, actually, wait, no, wrong, wrong. I haven't decided yet because there's a debate tomorrow night. So we might do the show a day early. We might do the show on Wednesday this week instead of Thursday. Um, I will get back to you on that. Obviously, I'll tweet about it when I make my mind up. But um, we might do the show on Wednesday as opposed to Thursday because, uh, yeah, it's, we got the debate on Tuesday. And, of course, the debate, I will live tweet like crazy. Anyway, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Peace.